Hi, this is Mr. Hamilton here with a friendly neighborhood trigger warning. The content that we're going to be discussing in this episode deals with a lot of hairy stuff. Murder, violence, death, blood, guts, child abuse, gun violence. There's going to be a lot of hairy stuff, so if at any point in this episode you feel yourself getting a little bit too triggered... If you feel that you cannot go on, if you feel that it is too much, pause the episode, go take a drink of water, look at some cute cat videos, come back if you feel that you can come back, or go to another episode or do something else if you feel that you can't. But think about yourself first. Because when I read these books, it's the first time that I read them while I record, I cannot screen them for any triggering stuff, so I'm going to give a blanket trigger warning before every episode starting now. So, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about some crimes. Uh, specifically, I know we're going to be talking about gun violence, and then we're going to be dealing with murder, murder, murder. So, rest assured, you're going to be okay. Everything's okay. I love you very much. All right? Just wanted to make that known. This episode of Slice of Ham is brought to you by my lovely Patreon supporters, including in limited to Jordan Maloney, Seth Godwin, Heather Aranda, August Reed, Marty Abernathy, Christy Knapp, Leslie Gettinger, Mindy Carrier, Rebecca Handy, Allie McDowell, Shauna, Shalane Lane, Kimberly Newell, Crystal Lurvey, Jordan Ackley, Aislinn Wilkerson, Dan Murphy, Callie Madden, Brooke Ponstein, Megan Weimer, Elizabeth, Amanda Haynes, Emily Davis, Andrea Livingston, Sarah McElroy, Samantha Ward, and Monica Hempfling. Thank you very much for being my Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join the Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash a slice of ham. What's the difference between a regular slash and a forward slash? Well, one's on the cutting edge, one's on the move, one's on the get-go, a real business slash. He's forward-thinking. Forward slash a slice of ham, A S L I C E O F H A M. Thank you very much. Now it's time to get to the show. These acts are absolutely unspeakable. Ah, oh, the fuck? I can't even speak about these acts right now, but I have to. <sighs> it's a it's a burden. It's a burden being who I am. <laughs> what the fuck I'm talking about? I I can't it, the book is called Unspeakable Acts, but yet I have to be the one to speak the acts. I, I, I have to speak. I'm reading the book. 
You see what position I'm in. Welcome to another episode of A Slice of Ham, everyone. Hi, my name is Casey Hamilton. How are you doing today? That's great. Wow. (laughs) I didn't even give you time, and I didn't fucking want to. I think I may have found the book I want to read next um, on my Patreon account after the I they vote. I think I might do a special episode where I choose a special book for the Patreon episode, and I might reveal it at some point because I'm very very excited to um, sort of announce it. You know, I I've wanted to read it for a while, and. I, I think I might. This might be the perfect one to do for the secret book club after we read the next book that we're reading because we're about to finish the Chris Watts one and then we're moving on to a another special special secret surprise. We're reading a book called "Don't Call It a Cult," which is all about Keith Raniere and the women of Nexium, that cult that just met its end a couple of years ago, actually. Um, so we'll be reading that. But I also have another book that I so want to read so very, very much. And I don't know if I'm going to do it on the regular podcast or if I'm going to do it um, on my Patreon. But uh, it's very exciting. It's it's called Deacon of Death. Deacon of Death. Sam Smithers, The Serial Killer Next Door by Fred Rosen. And this is an interesting book because I'll, I'll read the back. By day, Sam Smithers was the deacon of his Baptist church in Plant City, Florida. A respected neighbor to many and considered a true pillar of his community, Smithers was a devoted family man. But after the sun set, he became something else, a violent attacker of prostitutes and a killer. And it's interesting because Plant City, Florida is where I was born and raised. Isn't that fucking crazy? Uh, Plant City is where I just moved from about a month and a half ago. So interesting, 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 interesting. It can happen anywhere. It can happen even in your own backyard. So think about that before you go to bed tonight. Um, <laughs> anyway, exciting, exciting news. Exciting. What's, what else has been going on in my neck of the woods? Started posting on YouTube shorts, so that's fun. I'm going to, you know, try to focus some energy on there. I, uh, I, or I put some new books on my, uh, on my Amazon list. I need to make a wish list of books. A book list. That would be a smart thing to do. Um... But I am not a smart boy, so I have not done it yet. I've only just now thought of it, right just now. Um, oh, God. Jesus. There's... Uh, oh, fucking hell. My girlfriend just scared the absolute apple juice piss out of me by making a face in the, in the corner of my eye, and I just caught it. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. I have a cousin by the name of Susan. Uh, cousin Susan, I love you to death. Um, she did something when I was in middle school. She was a teacher at my middle school. I never had her as a teacher. She taught uh, a reading class. Um, and I don't think I had to take the class. But she was always wonderful. She is. She's just a kind, 
soul. She's a kind woman. She would give you the shirt off the back, off her back if she, if she could, you know. And she has such a bright, bubbly sense of humor about her. But it's admittedly very PG. It's very Baptist, you know. It's um, she she was doing a presentation or something, and she was talking to the group, and she went, and and this will have y'all saying O M W, and we all looked at her like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she went, Oh my word. Oh man, and I. <laughs> Some of the kids, like, cringed at it. Some of the other kids laughed at it. But I thought in the back of my head, that's hilarious. I am going to say that from now on. And now I have. And and not just OMW, but exactly how she said it when that went down. I always go like, oh, shit, man. That's crazy. OMW. And then they look at me and I go, oh, my word. And then they always... Just roll their fucking eyes at me because we're adults and we're not supposed to talk like that. But it's just so funny. <coughs> I'm gonna cough into microphone. I didn't mean to do that, but I did it anyway. Shout out to Susie. Yeah, let me get a quick shout out to Christina Applegate. You're the best. I I appreciate you. Good luck on your journey. Uh, thank you for your support. Um, all right. So now that we have talked a little bit about some nonsense, what else is there to do? I don't know. Update. you. Got, I guess uh, update. I'm still completely disillusioned with TikTok. Hi, hello. What else is new? Um, I don't really know what to do in the way of creative motivation, but I um, am gonna do a little dance right now that was fun for me i don't know what to do on tiktok anymore um i'm hoping that i will at some point the motivation all it does it does come and go but the motivation has been going more than it's been coming lately phrasing phrasing hamilton phrasing phrasing my boy you had you have to work on your phrasing you can't just shoot out whatever comes out of your mouth in the first the first thought in your head cannot be the the first thing that comes out of your mouth. We're going to go ahead and continue reading Unspeakable Acts by the lovely fucking Sarah Weinman. It's weird because the other book I'm reading, the book that I'm gearing up to read on my Patreon is by Sarah Berman. Sarah, 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 Marsha, 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 let's begin. We're going to take a little sippy. Oh, what a delicious sound. We're going to begin with The Reckoning by Pamela Koloff. In the spring of 1967... When Claire Wilson was a freshman at the University of Texas, she went to the library one afternoon to track down an old copy of Life magazine. Thumbing through a stack of back issues, she scanned the dates on their well-worn covers. Finally, she arrived at the one she was looking for, and she slid it off the shelf. 
On the cover was a stark black and white photograph of a fractured store window, pierced by two bullet holes. In the distance loomed the UT Tower. Above the university's most iconic landmark were three words in bold black letters, the Texas Sniper. Claire sat down and studied the large, color-saturated pictures inside, turning the pages as if she were handling a prized artifact. She read how Charles Whitman, an architectural engineering major, had brought an arsenal of weapons to the top of the tower on August 1st, 1966, and trained his rifles on the students and faculty below, methodically picking them off one by one. She pored over the images of people crouching behind cars as the massacre unfolded, and the aerial photo of campus dotted with red X's showing where Whitman had hit his intended targets. On the list of those killed, she located the name of her boyfriend, Thomas Ekman. Her gaze fell on Tom's picture, in which he sat in the formal pose of all mid-century yearbook photos, smiling broadly, his tie tucked into his v-neck sweater. Claire stared into his eyes, tracing the contours of his face. Holding the magazine in her hands, she felt some reassurance that what she had witnessed on campus that day had actually happened. Not that she needed proof. Above her left hip was a gnarled indentation, not yet healed, where one of Whitman's bullets had found its mark. She had been hospitalized for more than three months after the killing spree, spending what was supposed to have been the fall semester of her freshman year learning how to walk again. But by the time she returned to UT in January, the tragedy had become a taboo subject on campus. That, that'll happen. That'll happen. You go to FSU, you go to, the, to Florida Southern University, the land of the Seminoles. God, they really need to change that mascot. Um, FSU, if you go on to Sorority Row and mention Ted Bundy, they will kick you out. Um, and I do not know that from experience, but I have had friends at FSU and there have been reports from other people. Um, you don't talk about because that's where he... Ted Bundy murdered those sorority girls. He his last berserker rampage. Um, Charles Whitman, um, was an interesting character. Uh, he was really the first mass shooter that we have record of. Interesting, interesting, cool, cool, cool. Not cool. Not gonna. No, don't mass murder or shoot. That's not cool. But it cool in terms of psychology. Is cool in terms of psychology? I believe so. Where the fuck are we? Absent were the protocols that would later come to define school shootings. The grief counselors, the candlelight vigils, the nationwide soul-searching. Whitman's crime, decades before Columbine, Virginia Tech, and Newtown became shorthand for on-campus depravity, was unprecedented, and there was no language for it yet. The mass shooting was an obscenity whose memory stained the university, an aberration to be forgotten, and in the vastness of that silence, Claire found herself second-guessing what she remembered. 
The few times her friends tiptoed around the subject, they referred to it as the accident. Um, my first year of teaching, not to continually sidebar the book, but this is, and not to make things about me, you know, but I have an interesting perspective. My first year of teacher was the year of the Parkland shooting in Florida. Um, my first year of, like, not final internship, my first year of, this is your class, these are your kids, this is your curriculum, don't fuck it up, was the year one of the worst school shootings ever happened. Um, and... Boy, oh boy, things were never the same. I mean, yeah, we had to lock our doors. You know, my first, like the first couple, the first month or so, first couple months or so of my first year of teaching, you could leave your door unlocked and kids could come in if they needed to give you a pass or whatever. But after the Parkland shooting, until I left, your door was to remain locked and shut, and people had to knock on the door before they got... It made things very inconvenient, but I don't... It didn't really matter, the inconvenience, but every time you knocked on a door, every time you felt the door lock, especially when we first made the change, every time you felt that door lock and expected it to open, you went, mm, that's right, school shooting. And, and what a fucked up thing to think about. In the place where you're supposed to be safe. You're supposed to be safe at school. My class was supposed to be a safe space. School is supposed to be a safe space. And boy, did that space get so much less safe. Because Parkland, fuck, Parkland, Florida? That was not that far away from us. It really was like, damn, that came... Because you hear Columbine, Virginia Tech, you don't think that it could happen. Again, you don't think that any of this shit could happen to you, but really, in the back of my head, throughout my entire teaching career and throughout my internship, I never had the luxury of having that, oh, it could never happen to me, you know? Because we were trained to worry about that shit. And especially after Parkland... I remember, I, I vividly remember the day after, uh, the day that we came back to school the day after, and it was just like, you, you, you could cut the tension with a fucking knife. The way that my classroom was set up, I had a main classroom with the whiteboard and the desks and my computer, and then there was another room off in the back with all my computers. I had about 12 computers that the kids could edit in. And then in that room, there was another adjacent room that was a green room behind like a big metal door. It had a green screen on the wall and that's where we kept all of our expensive equipment that we could lock in there behind two doors. So we had the main door of the classroom locked, the computer room door locked, the green room door locked, three locked doors. My classroom was pretty damn safe. Um, and so we had a lockdown drill once a month. Once a month, lockdown drill. Like a school shooter drill. And then there were a couple times where we had, like, false alarms. I remember there was a guy walking on the sidewalk with a BB gun because he wanted to return it to Walmart, and he was close to the school. And 
they called a lockdown for that. And it was like, man with a gun. And we were all like, oh, fuck, is this real? The terror, the terror that you fucking feel. Um, when you get a call like, man with a gun outside of school and you are texting other teachers and you're like, is this real? Is this a drill? And you get a text, like I get a text from my mom in the other fucking hall because she teaches at the school. She's a department head and she's like, it is real. Police are here. Stop texting. Like, keep quiet. They'll text you. The, like at that point, whenever they sent us an email and they were like, don't text, turn your phones off, stop asking questions, don't email. I was like, oh shit, this is real. And so you have to shut everything down, you have to move into the back and not say a word, not make a sound. And you, the kids that, they pull out their phones and they start texting their parents their parents are texting them because they've heard reports and it's it freaks them out and you have to politely but firmly because you don't want to freak them out but you have to urgently say put your fucking phone away I the the Jim Can't Swim video the Jim Can't Swim video uh, what pretending to be crazy looks like is a full length in depth investigation into Nicholas Cruz's interrogation video and how he tried to pretend like he was crazy and hearing voices and that they told him to do it stupid son of a bitch just pleaded guilty to the fucking thing you know and we still have had so many mass shootings after Parkland it didn't change a fucking thing there was there was talk of putting putting guns in the school giving them to teachers uh are you fucking insane i didn't trust some of my colleagues with a gun and who's to say that a kid couldn't fucking break into a room and steal the gun out of the desk despite how you lock it up you fuck fuck off there there's nothing in the school that is secure enough to bypass human ingenuity if they really wanted to work at it it's better off to just not fucking do it and then there's the faculty meetings where we went over all the protocols for it was just the 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 tone after parkland really put a damper on school when i was in high school i had fun at least in class because i had good teachers i appreciated being challenged you know i i loved my electives i wasn't worried about being shot up all the time when i came back to teach it was a very real worry it was a very real worry i cannot fucking fathom what it is like to be a child growing up in that system to be a ch- to be a student you expect these kids to give a fuck about ap calculus when like they they have to legitimately think about getting a bulletproof backpack you think that they're going to give a fuck 
there was a, there was a day where there was some guy uh, I came in one day uh, I came into work one day and ten minutes after I got there the fucking fire alarm goes off and I'm like oh shit what the fuck so then I we all have to evacuate and then when we get outside they tell us to go back inside just the teachers and then all the teachers go in and they corral us in the office and they tell us that somebody committed suicide on our property on our baseball field they like the dude killed his family and then shot himself on the baseball field and it was like man with a gun panic and we still had to fucking go to school after that we still had to go to school and it was i think it was an exam day i i was just so like Cynical. I remember my like all my classes, my TV one classes. I was just like, we're watching a movie today. You, I don't, y'all don't, y'all don't have to worry about this class today after what the fuck happened. So there you go. Uh, you know, it was we took our exam and then we watched a movie. That was it. It was just very. Real. <laughs> I hate it. I I I very much. Um, I think that with the way technology has evolved, um, they just caught the Golden State Killer not too long ago through DNA evidence. You know, they it's harder and harder to serial kill. And get away with it over a period of years because technology has advanced so much. You know what's really easy? Shooting up a crowd of people in one big burst. That's why we've seen, I think that's <clears throat> a, a part of the reason why we've seen such an uptick in mass shootings. Because it's harder to kill individual people and get away with it. You know, also the psychological makeup of the shooters themselves. There are so many variables that go into it. You can't just pinpoint it to that one thing. Correlation does not equal causation as well. But it's just something to think about. You know, it's something to think about. It's something to think about. And it's something to think about. <laughs> something about repetition like that kind of makes me laugh. Repetition like annoys the shit out of me and also makes me laugh sometimes. Um, I remember one time my little brother was a tiny little boy. I had gotten in trouble in class. I, I skipped a class and got immediately caught. And I think the punishment was I, they shaved my head because I had long hair at the time. Um, but it was like the second time that that happened. So I didn't really give a shit. Um, the first time that happened, it was in sixth grade. And I'll tell you the story about that later on. Um, that's a funny fucking story. Um, but a little traumatizing at the same time. I got my head shaved and then nothing else happened. So I was like, all right. And my little brother comes up to me and he goes, Casey, every time you do something, it's every time you do something. So just go to school, go to sleep, go to school and go to sleep. And I was like, thanks, dude. <laughs> Thank you for the advice. You always know just what to say. My little boy, my little boy. You always know just what to say, my little boy. Let's do some more reading, please. 
Oh God, another fucking sidebar. That was my psychology teacher, uh, Mr. Height. Hello. He did 15 minutes of recreational reading before class, or I think it was 10 minutes, but still what a cool way to fucking start the class. Like, and he made it a stipulation. He was like, nothing school related. Do not pull out a school book. Don't pull out any homework. You have to pick a book that you are not actively reading anywhere else. And he would always start the class by go, he would go, um, he would go, all right, let's do some reading, please. So <clears throat> that's what I'll say when I'm going on tangents when, and I need to get back to reading. All right, let's do some reading, please. The person Claire longed to talk with most was gone. She had known Tom for only a few months, but they had been inseparable. They had met as summer school students in May 1966 when she was five months pregnant and single. A scandalous state of affairs for a middle-class girl from Dallas, though Claire had never cared much for social conventions. Tom, who was also 18 and new to Austin, had moved in with her on the spot. Claire had no interest in getting married. The institution was an anachronism as far as she was concerned. And Tom, whose parents had divorced when he was little, felt the same way. Like her, Tom attended Students for a Democratic Society meetings and saw himself as a foot soldier in the civil rights movement, once driving with her to the Rio Grande Valley to stand in solidarity with striking farm workers. The two passed whole afternoons on the screened-in porch before they used a bedroom in their house off campus, quoting favorite passages to each other from the novels they were reading. He, Joyce Carey's The Horse's Mouth, and she, Lawrence Durrell's The Alexandria Quartet. Sometimes Tom pressed his hand to her belly to see if he could feel the baby move. In the wake of the shooting... Claire tried to hold moments like these in her mind, but her thoughts often wandered back to that August morning when she and Tom had set out across the South Mall, and then she would be there again on that blisteringly hot day, walking on the wide-open stretch of concrete beside him. The anthropology class they were taking had let out early, sometime after eleven o'clock. Claire and Tom walked to the chuck wagon, the cafeteria inside the student union where campus leftists and self-styled bohemians held court, and happened to run into an old friend of Tom's from junior high. Eager to catch up, the ex-classmate suggested that they go to the student lounge to shoot some pool. Tom explained that he and Claire had to feed the parking meter first. Downing his coffee, he promised they would be right back. Tom and Claire stepped out into the thick midday heat and headed east under a canopy of live oak trees. Tom was sporting a short-sleeved plaid shirt and his first mustache. Claire was wearing a brand new maternity dress Tom had picked out, a beige shift with a flowery ribbon around the yoke. She was eight months along by then, and she could feel the weight of the baby as she walked. When they reached the upper terrace of the South Mall, the live oaks receded, and they were suddenly out in the open, exposed under the glare of the noon sun. To their left stood the tower, the tallest building in Austin after the Capitol. To their right stretched the mall's green-sloping lawn. As was often the case, they were deep in conversation. They had just begun a discussion about Claire's Spartan eating habits and Tom's concern that the baby was not getting proper nutrition. 
Claire was in the middle of saying that she had, in fact, had a glass of orange juice that morning, when a thunderous noise ran out. An instant later, she was falling, her knees buckling beneath her. Bewildered, Tom turned toward her. Baby, he said, reaching for her. What's wrong? Then he too was knocked off of his feet. The two teenagers collapsed onto the pavement beside each other. Claire was flat on her back, the arc of her abdomen rising up in front of her. She felt as if a white-hot electric current were coursing through her. Tom lay to her left, close enough to touch. His head turned away from her. She called out to him, but he did not answer. At first, no one on the South Mall seemed to realize what was happening. A man in a suit and tie ordered Claire and Tom to get up, ignoring her pleas for a doctor as he breezed by. She realized he thought it was a stunt. Guerrilla theater or an anti-war protest, maybe, judging from his contempt. Moments later, she heard screams and the frantic cries of other students as they scattered, ducking for cover. Bullets rained down from above, dinging balustrades, shattering windows, kicking loose concrete. A dozen yards from her and Tom, a physics professor was felled in mid-stride as he descended the stairs to the mall's lower terrace. His body would remain there, sprawled across the steps beside the bronze statue of Jefferson Davis as students crouched behind the trees and hedges nearby. On the lawn, a young woman in a blue dress with nowhere to hide cowered behind the concrete base of a flagpole. Claire looked up at the tower, where every now and then the nose of a rifle edged over the parapet, followed by the crack of gunfire and the whip of smoke. She wondered if the Vietnam War had somehow come to Texas. Every fifteen minutes, the tower's bell would chime, but it was nearly half an hour before the sound of sirens neared. And even then, no help came. A police officer who was advancing behind a stone railing, service revolver drawn, was swiftly shot in the neck. Unable to lift herself, Claire remained where she had fallen, marooned. Blood pooled beneath her, saturating her dress. She played dead as the sound of gunshots reverberated around her, echoing off the red tile roofs and limestone walls. Dozens of students had run home to retrieve their deer rifles, and the echo of return fire rang out as they came back to take aim at the gunman. It was nearly a hundred degrees by then, and she ached to get off the concrete, which scorched her bare legs. When the heat became unbearable, she bent her right knee just enough to lift her calf, half expecting to be torn apart by gunfire. She didn't know whether to feel relief or dread when she was not. She feared that Tom was dead, and that her child was lost too. Instead of the thrumming energy she usually felt inside her, the baby had become still. A young woman with long red hair suddenly ran into her field of vision, offering to help. "'Lie down quick so we don't get shot,' Claire pleaded. The woman dropped to the pavement, and, from the spot where she lay, a few feet away, tried to keep Claire conscious by peppering her with questions. What classes are you taking? Where did you grow up? Claire whispered back a few words, struggling to answer. Finally, more than an hour after the shooting had begun, three young men bolted from their hiding places and sprinted toward her and Tom. 
One grabbed Claire's arms, the other her ankles, and together they ran as her body dangled between them. The third man hoisted Tom's wilted frame into his arms, steadying himself under the weight of the teenager's lifeless body before following close behind. As they raced across the mall, Claire did not feel the penetrating pain of her injuries or realize that she was losing copious amounts of blood. She could not make sense of what had just happened, much less begin to fathom how the jagged path of one bullet had, in a single moment, redrawn her life's course forever. She knew only that if she was lucky, she might live. Growing up, Claire had never thought of guns as something to fear. As a kid, she had taken riflery at summer camp in East Texas, where she had delighted in the thrill of target practice. Her parents kept guns in their house in East Dallas. Her father, a bird hunter and ex-marine, stashed his long guns in the closet, where they leaned up casually against the wall. Guns were intertwined in her family history— they had made Texas passable for her Tennessee-born ancestors, who received a land grant from Stephen F. Austin in the 1820s. At age 12, her maternal grandfather had used the proceeds from his initial cotton harvest in Brazoria County to buy his first rifle. Even when President Kennedy was assassinated, Claire did not blame gun violence, but rather the culture of intolerance that gripped her hometown. She knew all too well what it meant to be an outsider in Dallas. At a time when the John Birch Society and arch-conservative oil magnate H.L. Hunt had held sway over the city, her father John had dedicated his legal career to representing clients, many of them black, in workers' compensation cases. Her mother, Mary, was the local precinct chair for the Democratic Party. So consumed by her work championing, championing various liberal causes that Claire came to measure time in election cycles. Though the Wilsons lived only one block from the Lakewood Country Club, they refused to join, leaving Claire and her four siblings to make the long walk to the municipal pool, which was also closed to blacks, but at least welcomed their Jewish friends. Not wanting Claire, the eldest, to be oblivious to the injustices beyond their privileged all-white enclave, her father drove her on more than one occasion through West Dallas. Drove her on more than one occasion, excuse me. Her father drove her on more than one occasion through West Dallas, then home to a toxic lead smelter and slums that lacked sewage systems and running water. When she was 12, her father took her to see Martin Luther King Jr. speak at the Majestic Theater in Fort Worth, where few whites were present. At a, pri at a private reception afterward, he led her up to the young minister to shake his hand. At the time, in the late 50s, the unspoken rules of segregated society seemed immutable to Claire. When her parents went out to dinner one night with a black couple they knew, she watched, frozen, as the four drove off in her parents' Cadillac, convinced they would all be murdered. By the time she was a teenager, however, she had grown impatient with the pace of change. Each day for a month during the summer of 1964, she donned a dress, hat, and white gloves, and headed downtown with her mother to take part in the protests outside the Piccadilly Cafeteria, a popular restaurant that refused service to blacks. Claire was arrested and booked into the city jail, but the charges were dismissed. She was ridiculed for being a, quote, N-word lover, 
I'm not saying that. (laughs) When she returned the fall to Woodrow Wilson High School, an epithet she doubled down on when she spent the following summer in the Mississippi Delta working as a volunteer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So immersed did she become in the SNCC's effort to get black residents registered to vote that she stayed on until October, content to miss her senior year. Late that fall, she ran into John Muir, an acquaintance who had come home to Dallas unexpectedly from his sophomore year at Columbia University. Muir was wrestling with whether to drop out of college and devote himself to the civil rights movement. A graduate of the elite St. Mark's School of Texas, Muir was charismatic and well-read, and though he was white, he had served as vice president of the local NAACP Youth Council. Claire had gotten to know him during the summer of the Piccadilly protest, when a multiracial group of teen activists had regularly gathered at her parents' house. During those unhurried afternoons, Muir had introduced her to the works of E.E. E. Cummings and Joseph Heller, and played her her first Bob Dylan album she had ever heard. But it was not until Christmas week in 1965, after Claire had returned from Mississippi, that they slept together. Muir decided to return to Columbia after the holidays, but first he agreed to help Claire move to Austin. Her parents, whose marriage had been floundering for years, had recently divorced, and she saw no compelling reason to stay in Dallas. Before long, Claire had landed a job waiting tables in her new city and enrolled for night classes at Austin High. She felt at home in the sleepy capital, a place of cheap rent, psychedelic rock, and nascent political activism. Her involvement in the civil rights movement quickly won her respect and friends, and she fell in with a group of like-minded UT students who were ablaze with new ideas. It was in the midst of this happy-go-lucky time, when she was finally free from the judgments of racist classmates and the near-constant threat of violence she had felt in Mississippi, that Claire discovered she was pregnant. Muir dutifully made a trip to Austin after she told him the news, but during their discussions about how to move forward, he never suggested they make a life together. While she had no desire to get married, Claire felt bruised by the rejection. Muir returned to Columbia, leaving behind the then considerable sum of $200 so she could have an abortion. On the advice of friends, Claire met with a woman who knew how to procure the illegal, and at the time often perilous, procedure. But she could not bring herself to go any further. Though her decision to keep the baby would have meant certain exile from most social circles, in her group of free-thinking friends, her pregnancy was of little concern. Privately, the idea of having a child thrilled her, but it was not until she met Tom that May, that someone shared in her joy. I was really, truly happy for the first time in my life, Claire told me. I was out on my own, I was in love, and I had so many friends. We were revolutionizing the world, and Tom and I were at the front of it. Whitman hit his targets with terrifying precision. Across a crime scene that spanned five city blocks, the former Marine sharpshooter managed to strike his intended victims with ease, felling them from distances well beyond 500 yards. His arsenal included a scoped 6mm Remington bolt-action rifle, a 35 caliber pump rifle, a 357 Magnum Smith & Wesson, a, three, a 30 caliber M1 carbine, a 9mm Luger pistol, a Gillespie Brescia 25 caliber pistol, a 12-gauge shotgun with a sawed-off barrel, and about 700 rounds of ammunition. 
His rampage dragged on for more than an hour and a half before Austin police officers Ramiro Martinez and Houston McCoy reached him on the tower's observation deck and shot him dead. By the time it was all over, Whitman had succeeded in killing 16 people and wounding 31. Claire's rescuers miraculously avoided being hit as they ran headlong toward the western edge of the mall, spiriting her to the shelter of the Jefferson Davis statue. From there, five bystanders took over, carrying her to Intercampus Drive, where they loaded her into a waiting ambulance. She would be one of 39 gunshot victims delivered to Brackenridge's hospital's emergency room in the span of 90 minutes. Many of them were bleeding out quickly, and doctors and nurses shouted back and forth as they tried to discern who should be sent into surgery first. Claire and a 17-year-old high school student named Karen Griffith who had been shot in the lung, were lying on gurneys beside each other, waiting to be x-rayed, when a doctor intervened. There's no time for x-rays, he yelled, directing his staff to prep them both for surgery. Claire was still conscious when a medic began cutting off her blood-soaked dress, and she begged them to stop, not wanting to lose the garment Tom had picked out for her. Though she clung to the decision that she had only been shot in the arm, her magical thinking did not extend to Tom, whom she felt certain was dead. She had seen his inert body as she was lifted away. Claire was put under general anesthetic, and her doctors set to work. The full extent of the damage was not evident until they made a lengthy incision down her torso, from sternum to pubic bone. The bullet had torn into her left side just above the hip, splintering the tip of her pelvis, puncturing her small intestine and uterus, lacerating an ovary, and riddling her internal organs with shrapnel. A C-section was performed, but the baby, a boy, was stillborn. A bullet fragment had pierced his skull. The operation took twelve hours. Not long after Claire regained consciousness, she was wheeled down a corridor to the ICU. Standing along the walls on either side were her friends, who had waited at the hospital until past midnight to learn if she had made it out of surgery. "'We love you, Claire,' they called out. She spent the next seven weeks in the ICU, in a fog of Demerol and Darvon. All told, she would endure five operations at Brackenridge to repair the damage done to her. To distract herself from the pain, she would belt out protest songs from her bed, delivering renditions of Which Side Are You On? and We Shall Overcome at the top of her lungs. With no TVs or even visitors, besides family members, allowed inside the ICU, she had few distractions and little information about life outside Brackenridge. Despite being, being a victim in a tragedy that had made headlines around the world, she never saw or heard a single news report about the shooting. Her life narrowed to her hospital bed, and the green floor-to-ceiling curtains the nurses drew tightly around her, past which she could sometimes catch sight of a tree and a sliver of sky. Intravenous lines extended from all four of her limbs, and her left leg, which was in traction, was suspended above her. Every two hours, in an excruciating ritual she came to dread, a nurse would turn her, rolling her onto one side and then the other. Her mother, who tried to project an image of strength, often sat at her bedside, chatting with the doctors and offering Claire words of encouragement. Refusing to give in to the chaos that the shooting had wrought, she was always immaculately dressed, often wearing a two-piece knit suit from Neiman Marcus, her blonde hair pulled into a French twist. 
If Claire's mother or her doctors ever explicitly told her that her baby was stillborn, she struck it from her memory. No one, as far as she could recall, ever spoke aloud the fact that her child had died, that the baby was a boy, and that a burial plot had been secured for him were the only details she gleaned. Claire did not ask questions because she already knew. She felt his absence. She was startled when her milk came in days after the C-section, leaving her breasts engorged, and relieved when it dried up and her baby weight fell away. Her body settled back into its old contours, her belly flat, as if the pregnancy had never happened. Without the chance to hold the baby in her arms, Claire did not know how to mourn his loss. She had not yet chosen a name, and he felt like an abstraction, his face unknowable. But her grief for Tom and their abbreviated summer together only metastasized once the fall semester got underway. She was tormented by the fact that she had not been able to attend his funeral. I learned more in those months with Tom than perhaps in any other period of my life, she wrote in a four-page condolence letter to his father. The sort of things that were between Tom and me happen so rarely in this world that most people don't even understand the language. Most of the shooting victims who had been admitted to Brackenridge were discharged. Some, like Karen Griffith, did not survive. Only Claire stayed on, her presence noted every now and then in the local paper, which ran a two-sentence squib on September 16th announcing that she was the last of Whitman's victims to remain hospitalized. The myriad complications of abdominal gunshot wounds, including the threat of infection and sepsis, made Claire's condition tenuous. By the time her surgeries were complete, several feet of her intestine had been removed as well as an ovary and the iliac crest of her pelvic bone. Daily physical therapy sessions allowed her to gradually regain the ability to walk. After she was moved out of the ICU, she became adept at using a cane, and at night, when she was unable to sleep, she would maneuver her way to the nurse's station to visit with some of the women in starched white uniforms who cared for her, some of whom were not much older than she was. Claire was finally released the first week of November. She was 19 by then, though she felt a thousand years old. She returned to campus in January, and in the early spring, she made the first of several visits to the library to page through the August 12th issue of Life. She had no pictures of Tom, and though the yearbook photo featured in the magazine failed to capture his spirit, she liked to study it all the same. The confirmation she sought about the massacre, that she had not dreamed or invented it, was muddled by the fact that Life, like most publications at the time, omitted her preterm baby from the official tally of the dead. And so, rather than avoid the South Mall on her way to class each day, she purposely walked to pass the spot where she and Tom had been hit, intensely curious, as if her proximity to the crime scene would render it more vivid. When the tower's observation deck was reopened that June, she visited it by herself, riding the elevator to the 27th floor, and then taking three short flights of stairs to the top, just as Whitman had with his arsenal. She looked over the balustrade down at the mall, as he had, and crouched down to peer through the downspouts where he had rested the barrel of his gun. Austin was a place that had brought her so much happiness, but as she surveyed campus and the city that spread out beyond it, she felt an overwhelming sense of dislocation. How would she ever recover from the enormity of her loss, she wondered, or navigate the years ahead? 
I was so lonely and longing for some sort of physical contact, Claire said. All I wanted right then was for somebody to put their arms around me and hold me tight. Ten years after the shooting, on a warm July afternoon in 1976, Claire stood in a phone booth in northern Colorado, not far from the rugged peaks of the Continental Divide, with the receiver pressed to one ear. She had agreed to speak to an Austin-American statesman reporter named Brenda Bell, who was interviewing survivors of the shooting for an article that would mark its 10-year anniversary. With the help of Claire's father, Bell had tracked Claire down in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, outside the small town of Loveland. Claire had never spoken about the shooting publicly, and her voice was soft as she answered the reporter's questions. After she had been shot, she told Bell she was basically mixed up, confused about life in general. Only once she started reading the Bible in the years that followed had she found some peace. Scripture, she explained, started affecting a lot of changes in my life. She had found a group of Seventh-day Adventists who worked as medical missionaries around Loveland. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Where they tried to help other young people physically, mentally, and spiritually, she said. Her time there, immersed in nature and the gospel, had been restorative. I'm so thankful, she told Bell before she hung up. I'm glad to be alive. Claire had spent five years living and working at the Eden Valley Institute, a spiritual retreat accessible only by unpaved roads and bounded by jaw-dropping panoramas of the snow-capped Rockies. Its clean-living Adventist doctrine rejected not just smoking, drinking, and sex outside marriage, but also the distractions of popular culture. In an era defined by the loosening of social mores, it was a monastic existence. Claire did not watch the evening news, listen to the radio, or go to the movie theater. While some women worked on the Institute's farm, which yielded much of their food, or helped with the cooking and childcare, her main occupation was teaching the residents' school-age children. Her father approvingly told her on his first visit that the self-sustaining community was the closest thing to Red China he had ever seen. Though newspapers could be found at Eden Valley, Claire steered clear of them, preferring to spend her free time taking long walks through the back country. She was unaware of the Watergate hearings or the fall of Saigon. It was very healing to be way out, deep in the mountains, apart from the rest of the world, Claire told me. She had first tried to heal herself in more conventional ways, visiting UT's University Health Services as early as 1967 for the talk therapy she believed she urgently needed. But after her first session, during which she felt that the psychologist had made a pass at her, Claire abandoned the idea. At her father's urging, she transferred to the University of Colorado at Boulder that fall, leaving the near-constant reminders of the shooting behind. But she was homesick there, and she returned to UT the following year. To her friends, she had seemed fine, nice and sunny, recalled one, but not long after her return, she landed at the student health center again when she abruptly stopped eating. The psychiatrist who evaluated her, Claire thought, showed more interest in her admission than she had taken LSD before than in her obvious depression. He put her on Thorazine, a powerful antipsychotic, and though her hair began falling out and she struggled to concentrate in class, her treatment was not adjusted. Questioning doctors was just not done then, so I was an obedient patient, she told me. There never was any talk therapy. He only wanted to discuss my past drug experiences, which were so few. 
1969, at the end of her spring semester, she dropped out and moved back to Colorado. It was that same year that Claire began to feel the stirrings of belief. After the shooting, I'd started wondering what forces of work, uh, what forces were at work in the universe, she said. I felt so strongly that there was a force I couldn't see, and I was interested in finding out what it was. She escaped to the mountains outside Boulder with a University of Colorado student named Ernie, with whom she lived in a rough honed house in the, in the woods with no heat or indoor plumbing. They immersed themselves in nature and back-to-basics living, warming themselves by a coal stove and hauling water from a well. Just down the road from them, and the other hippies who had taken up residence in Left Hand Canyon, was an 82-year-old woman named Emma Spencer, whom her neighbors called Ma. A Seventh-day Adventist, she grew her own food, wove rugs by hand, and strictly observed the Sabbath. To Claire, the child of non-believers, she was a source of fascination. Ma gave her a Bible, which she began to read, and one afternoon Claire found herself kneeling in prayer beside the older woman, searching for words as she tried to communicate with God. She had cried for Tom many times, but as she knelt on the knobby rag rug in Ma's log cabin, she felt, as she would later recall, an unbidden and unexpected grief surface for the baby. For the first time, Claire began to weep for her lost son. Her desire for a sincere, authentic Christian life, as she called it, took her to Eden Valley in 1971. She would remain there until she was 30, not striking out on her own until the winter of 1977. Her friends in Texas and Colorado, who heard from her infrequently during this time, if at all, were stunned that the girl they knew, who delighted in skinny-dipping and challenging the status quo, had suddenly gotten religion. I don't know what combination of PTSD, spiritual yearning, which was very much of the moment, depression, and epiphany led her to the strict regime of the Seventh-day Adventist utopia, observed Tim Corsi, a childhood friend. But I do remember thinking, well, how about that? She walked right through the looking glass. The dream, which Claire had first had in her 20s, always began the same way. She would look down and discover her baby bright-eyed in her arms. He was never as small as a newborn. He would be a few months old, perhaps, or a toddler, even, old enough to meet her gaze. And she would be flooded with relief as she stared back at him in wonder. Then she would glance away or walk into another room, her attention wandering for no more than a second. And when she looked back, her son would be gone. Claire did not have the dream frequently, but when she did, in the paraphetic years that followed at her time at Eden Valley, she awakened with a start, a deep ache in her chest. As she moved from Colorado to other states in the West, New Mexico, Texas, and Wyoming, she would occasionally stop in a public library to see if she could find the old Life magazine, anxious for something concrete upon which to anchor her longings. In those analog days, before it was possible to conjure up information with, about anything with a few keystrokes, <clears throat> her personal history was relegated to microfilm reels and hardbound magazine volumes. And there, alone among the stacks, she would scrutinize Tom's photo again. People she met had sometimes heard she was the victim of gun violence. One rumor at Eden Valley placed her at the 1970 Kent State shootings but she rarely shared her story. After Eden Valley, 
Claire made a brief sojourn to another religious community in upstate New York and then headed to New Mexico, where her sister Lucy was working as a psychologist as a residential facility for developmentally disabled adults. It was there that Claire met her first husband, an easygoing teacher who ran the facility's art therapy program, and they wed in 1979. She never discussed the shooting with him, and he never showed any interest in discussing it. I really just wanted to be married and have a baby, and that was more important to me than whether we were a good match, Claire said. They were not, and within two years they had divorced. Claire packed her belongings and headed to Stephenville, Texas, where she moved in with her grandmother and enrolled in Tarleton State University, determined to finally finish college. She did so two years later, in 1983, with honors, when she was 35 years old. Armed with a degree in education, she then made her way to Wyoming, where she taught at a private Seventh-day Adventist school in the town of Buffalo, in the shadow of the Bighorn Mountains. Like many rural Adventist schools, it was modeled on a one-room schoolhouse, and she was its only teacher. Her life in Wyoming suited her well. The school was out in the country, and she had fewer than a dozen students, ranging in grades from first to eighth. But even as she devoted herself to the children, Claire found she could not shake her recurring thoughts about her baby. She wanted to have a child of her own, before she ran out of time and her dreams about holding her son took on a new intensity. Claire had sought psychological help at Tarleton with little success, and two years after moving to Wyoming, she tried again. Soon, she met a bright, empathetic local therapist who listened without judgment as she described the anger that sometimes felt as if it might consume her. She began to see him in twice-weekly sessions in his comfortable office just off Main Street, where she finally spoke freely nearly two decades after the fact, about having lost Tom and the baby. It was the first time I'd been given permission to talk about what happened and to mourn in any sort of meaningful, sustained way, said Claire. Her therapist told her about post-traumatic stress disorder, a then-new medical diagnosis that he said described the array of symptoms of some trauma victims, many of them veterans of war, experienced in the wake of catastrophic violence. PTSD, he explained, was characterized by nightmares, emotional detachment, rage, and a strong desire to avoid people and places that might trigger memories of the trauma. It was a diagnosis Claire reflexively resisted, because to accept it felt cheap. Since I hadn't earned it, she said. I had never seen the horrors of Vietnam. But Claire, you were shot. You, you have, kind of. The horrors of Vietnam were brought to you in a in a brief flash. Man, don't don't do that to yourself. The incremental progress she was making was cut short when six months into counseling, her therapist transferred her into group therapy, and Claire found herself surrounded by people with substance abuse problems, many of whom had been mandated by court order to attend, who had little insight into her state of mind. At loose ends, she abandoned the group and took up with a 19-year-old ranch hand and Wyoming native named Brian James. Then 38, she had little in common with the soft-spoken high school graduate, but in him she saw a kindred spirit with a curious and unconventional mind. Each afternoon, after she had dismissed her students, they talked for hours, hiking through the canyons and dry creeks that he had grown up exploring. Eight months after they met, they decided to get married. 
when they wed. In August 1986, a full 20 years after the UT tragedy, Brian was just two years older than Claire had been when she was shot. I think she was still trying to recover all that she had lost at 18, her sister Lucy told me. They moved to Arizona, where Lucy had already put down roots, rented a house in Patagonia, near the border town of Nogales. Claire taught elementary school, and Brian worked construction jobs, and their, Mary was a, their marriage was a happy one at first, though they would never delve into the defining event of her life. I knew Claire had been shot, and that she had lost her boyfriend and her baby, but we never had a deep conversation about it, Brian told me. It wasn't something I talked to her about, and it wasn't something she seemed eager to discuss. Instead, Claire tried to get pregnant, but she was met with disappointment. Though her doctors in 1966 had assured her that she would still be able to have children despite being left with one ovary and a uterus that had been stitched back together, she often wondered if Whitman who had already robbed her of so much, had also stolen her ability to conceive. She had all but given up by 1989, when she was 41, and her mother called with an improbable offer. Mary Wilson was by then on her third marriage, and had reinvented herself as a successful, successful New York City real estate agent. She was animated on the phone as she laid out a proposal for Claire, a realtor, a realtor who worked for her, who had emigrated from Ethiopia, had introduced her to a good friend of his from Addis Ababa. The friend had been allowed into the United States a year earlier so that his young son could go, undergo emergency surgery for a congenital heart defect that had left him near death. The boy had remained in the state so he could receive follow-up medical care, but he and his father had overstayed their visas, and if they returned to Ethiopia, he would not have access to the pediatric cardiologists he needed. The father had already embarked on the long and complex process of seeking asylum, her mother continued, but his and his son's legal status was precarious. Would Claire and Brian consider adopting the boy, she asked, so he could remain in the country? The first step would be to take a legal guardianship of him, an effort that his father supported. The boy was four years old, added her mother, and his name was Sirach. That June... After Claire had studied every book she could find at the library on the subject of adoption, she and Brian packed up their hatchback and embarked on a cross-country road trip to New York to meet the little boy who would become their son. He was an incredible gift, Claire said. A gift I didn't expect. Sirach had not seen his mother since he had left Addis Ababa as a toddler, and from the moment he caught sight of Claire in her mother's house in Riverdale, he brightened. I can't remember a time when I didn't know her, Sirach told me. On their first day together, his father and Brian set out to go sightseeing around the city, leaving Sirach and Claire to become acquainted with each other. For the next three days, she fed him, bathed him, sang to him, read to him, and tucked him in at night— he was cheerful and playful in return, and from the first day, he called her Mommy in his accented English. When it was finally time to load his meager belongings, two shirts, two pairs of shorts, and a toy school bus, into the hatchback and head home to Arizona, his father walked him to the car and buckled him in. His dad was very loving, but he didn't make a big deal out of saying goodbye, Claire said. He made it seem like Sirach was going on a long trip, on a big adventure. Sirach's father could travel inside the United States while his application for asylum was under review, and he promised the boy that he would come see him soon. 
As Brian drove, Claire and Ciroc sat together in the back seat, watching as the Manhattan skyline faded from view. The boy cried quietly to himself for a few minutes, but he became more animated as they moved farther from the city, and he was insistent on Claire's undivided attention. If she pulled her book out and started to read, she was in the middle of James Missioner's Alaska. He would stick his head between her and the page, grinning. Uh, that ain't cute. Don't fucking do that to me. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but that's not cute to me. If I'm trying to, like, if I'm trying to watch a movie on a laptop and a kid's, like, fucking around and, like, getting in the way, or if I was trying to read a book or look at something on my phone and a kid is, like, constantly, like, it, the first couple times, fine, but if you're consistently doing that, I'm gonna bark at you like a fucking dog. If she lay down and stretched out across the back seat, he would sprawl on top of her until his face hovered just above hers. They remained that way for hours, talking and laughing and staring up at the flat blue summer sky. Though they could not have looked any more different, they each bore a similar scar, a long vertical line along the torso where a surgeon's scalpel had once traced a path. Hers began below the sternum, while his was located higher up closer to his heart. Years later, when he was old enough to understand, Claire would tell him what had happened to her in 1966, and he would listen, carefully considering her story, before adding that he would always think of the baby she had lost as his brother. Despite the fact that Sirak had been born with a ventricular septal defect, or a hole in his heart, he thrived. <laughs> He was a healthy, if slight, little boy, and when Claire took him to see his pediatric cardiologist every three months for his checkups, he was usually given a clean bill of health. As the only dark-skinned person in their community, he was a source of fascination to the kids who reached out to touch his hair. Don't fucking do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's so... That's such a... Not a good thing to do. Don't do that without permission. Um... And really, like, I don't understand the fascination of, like, oh, my God, can I touch your hair? Because it's not, it, like, it, it makes other human beings out to be, like, kind of creatures in a way. Like, they're treating him like, oh, oh, my God, can we pet him? Like, no. No, you cannot. <laughs> Stop it. But Sirach embraced the very thing that set him apart, beaming when his father, who made biannual visits to Arizona stood before his classmates and spoke about their African heritage. From the start, Sirach was quick to make friends and, and an exuberant presence. Teach me, he exhorted one teacher the summer before he started kindergarten. Claire and Brian formally adopted him when he was six years old, shortly after they moved west to the unincorporated community of Aravaca. Sirach's father continued to make the trek out to see them, and each time he left, the boy would take the snap-brim cap his dad had worn during his visit and bring it to bed with him, resting it on the pillow. On nights when the stars shone so brightly above their desert outpost that they illuminated the canyons below, Claire, Brian, and Sirach would roll out their sleeping bags on the flat portion of their roof and lie side by side, staring up at the constellations. This makes me happy. Oh, there's something about that me being adopted myself. Um, there's something about a child who gets adopted into a loving family and really like connects with the people that adopted them that warms my fucking heart. Whenever I see videos of like 
people asking step parents to adopt them formally. Um, like you see compilations on YouTube of like people that present their stepfathers or stepmothers with adoption papers and they ask them to formally adopt them. I've even seen like some people do it as adults, like fully grown adults that are like, I want you to adopt me. I want to take your last name. And I fucking sob every single time. I sob like a fucking baby. Oh man. It makes me happy that Ciroc is in a loving family. I, I don't like that people touching him. I, I enjoy that he is such a bright and exuberant... Pre you can tell that he is... He, he might be the thing that saved Claire, honestly. He, he might have been what brought Claire out of that darkness. Oh, this is a really good story. Ugh. Still... The area between the two lower chambers of Sirach's heart remained fragile, and at the age of seven, he was rushed into surgery after an echocardiogram suggested that his aorta had narrowed and was impeding blood flow to his brain. The operation was called off after another round of tests. Afterward, Claire found herself preoccupied with the possibility that something cataclysmic might happen. Even a nick in the mouth, sustained during a dental exam, say, or while playing with other kids, could allow bacteria into his bloodstream and have fatal consequences. Claire girded herself, carrying supplies of antibiotics in her purse at all times, but she could not shake her fear that, at any moment, she could lose Ciroc. Once, she dreamed that she watched him board a bus that then abruptly pulled away, and she chased after it, calling out for the boy and waving her arms wildly before losing sight of him. Claire did her best to keep her worry to herself. Harder to hide was the anguish she had carried since the shooting, which would surface unpredictably despite how fortunate she felt about finally having a family. I still had so much anger, Claire told me. She was moody, and short-tempered, often lashing out at Brian, who grew distant, spending more and more time away from home. In 1996, when Sirach was 11, Claire accepted a teaching position at a Seventh-day Adventist school in Virginia and took their son with her. Three years later, she and Brian divorced. And then, just like that, Claire was a single mother, scratching out a living, ashamed by her cardinal failure, as she saw it to keep her family intact. Her restlessness ensured that she and Sirach did not stay in Virginia long. They moved to Nebraska in 1999, where he started high school, and then to Kansas two years later. Though her pay as a teacher was barely enough to get by on, she and Sirach were resourceful, baking their own bread and gathering windfall apples. In Virginia, where they lived next to a public housing project, Claire sometimes treated herself to a 25-cent copy of the Washington Post, and she and Sirach took turns reading the restaurant reviews aloud at the kitchen table, imagining that they, too, were dining in a white tablecloth establishment. What little cra- what, whoa. Claire? Cool it, dude. I catch myself off guard sometimes when I mispronounce shit. And if it's really egregious, I'll be like, whoa, dude, who are you? What little Claire scraped together, she put into piano lessons for her son, who was captivated by classical music. Once, when she reached to turn down the volume of a Beethoven symphony they were listening to in the car, Sirach had signaled for her to stop. No, 
he said, smiling, as if transported. We were just getting to the exciting part. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a true artiste. He spent hours at the piano each day practicing Chopin's etudes, and he played wherever he could find an audience, from their church to local nursing homes. Then one day, at age 14, he started complaining of blinding headaches. His physician initially believed he had meningitis, but after further testing, he was diagnosed with Julian Barr syndrome, a rare disorder in which the body's immune system attacks the nervous system, often causing temporary paralysis. Sirach was rushed to the hospital, where he soon found himself unable to walk. Seeing Sirach confined to a hospital bed, so weak at first that he could not play the keyboard his teacher had brought him, Claire was seized by terror. As she sat vigil at his bedside, she closed her eyes and bowed her head, silently pleading with God not to take this son away from her, too. I cannot imagine. I can't imagine the panic, the, the parental panic that you must feel. Um, and there's one of, one of my Patreon supporters actually has done a very good job at putting the parental perspective into my head, <clears throat> especially under the lens, under the true crime lens, but underneath like a, a compassionate, empathetic human lens as well. I immediately felt for Claire, like I felt for Ciroc, but I immediately felt for Claire, like, what do I do? How do I help my son? What do I do? And that paralyzing fear that you must feel when you can't do anything to help, except for try, you know. Um, hi, Leslie, how are you? I hope you're well. The syndrome, exotic-sounding and mercurial, eventually ebbed with treatment, and Sirach returned to the ninth grade, a month later, shuffling behind a walker. No sooner was his body strong again than he faced another ordeal— during his hospitalization, doctors had discovered he needed open-heart surgery to repair his aorta, this time unequivocally. 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 Not unequivocably. Unequivocally. This time, unequivocally. The operation, performed in the spring of 2000, was a success— though it would be another three years when his cardiologist told Claire that his heart had fully healed before she felt any sense of relief. Sirach, who was 18 by then, would be a healthy adult, the doctor explained. Sometimes, in those days after Sirach's recovery, Claire thought back to an epiphany she'd had years before while on a hike in Wyoming. She had come across, uh, come across a tree whose trunk bent at a dramatic angle at its midway point, forming a curvature that resembled the letter C. Something catastrophic, lightning, drought, had diverted it from its path. But the tree, resilient, had righted itself and grown strong again. Claire was still living in Virginia in the spring of 1999 when one word... Columbine became synonymous with mass murder. Because she didn't own a TV, she was not subjected to the disturbing footage that seemed to play out on every channel, 
in which petrified teenagers streamed out of their suburban Denver high school, hands over their heads, frantic to escape the carnage inside. Still, when she saw the headlines, she felt her pulse race. She scoured the newspaper for details about the pair of teenagers who had come to school armed with bombs and guns, about the 12 students and the teacher who had been slaughtered, about the 21 gunshot victims who had survived. Even as she grieved for them, Claire was taken aback by the attention the shooting commanded. As the victim of a crime that was still cloaked in silence and shame, she felt strangely envious. So much of what happened to me was still a mystery, she said. Every single detail that revealed itself was precious. You know, I was kind of like reading this story like, what's the point? What is the point? And I think that's... That's a good, that is a good point. Um, and keep in mind, this book is also about our fascination with true crime as much as it is true crime itself. So I think this frames the the attention, because Columbine, when it happened, um, shocked the fucking nation. It, it, it was really the the school shooting uh, to end all school shootings until like Virginia Tech came around but even still Columbine reigned supreme in people's minds because it was the first major tragedy of its kind like that um I don't know enough about Columbine I've kind of purposefully stayed away from it because there was something about me being a teacher like Every time I would try to, like, listen to a podcast about it or read a book about it, I would just get real fucking sad. Um, But I might need to revisit that. In fact, Claire had begun to reconstruct parts of her story the previous Thanksgiving. That week, she had stopped in a bookstore in Dulles International Airport. Dulles? Dulles? I don't know. Where she was waiting for a flight that would take her to Arizona to see her sister. Sirac was staying with friends for the holiday, and Claire, who was rarely apart from him, was on her own. Someone she knew had recently mentioned an item in the Washington Post on a new book called A Sniper in the Tower by Texas historian Gary Laverne, and Claire, who was curious to see it, eyed the shelves. Though pop culture had elevated Charles Whitman to near-mythic status in the intervening decades through both film and music, Harry Chapin's 1972 song, Sniper, cast him as a misunderstood anti-hero. The tragedy itself had received scant attention, save for the obligatory anniversary stories that ran in Texas newspapers. Now, Charles Whitman, as a killer, if I'm not mistaken, let me go ahead and do some light Googling real quick. I'm going to type on my keyboard, Charles Whitman. Charles Whitman, if I don't, if I recall correctly, he had a brain tumor or something. There was something wrong with his head, and he wrote a note like, "Hey, fucking look at my brain, please, because there's something wrong with me, causing me to like be angry and act out like this." Um, which I guess is where the misunderstood antihero thing comes in. But there are plenty of people with brain disorders and brain tumors that don't end up murdering people and shooting them from a book tower. There are plenty of people that go through the same thing that he went through and don't end up murdering people. So he's not misunderstood. Let's see. Um, Didn't he have a suicide note? 
he okay yeah he had a suicide note and he was talking about his violent impulses I, I think they actually did find a, a tumor in his brain something that was pressing up again there it is yes they discovered a pecan sized brain tumor um which it did something it was pressing up against something i don't know or maybe it had no effect at all who knows either way he's not misunderstood um <laughs> claire finally spotted the book whose cover featured an old black and white yearbook photo of whitman wearing a wide grin rather than start at the beginning she flipped to the end and scanned the index where she was startled to see her name turning to the first citation on page 141, she skimmed the text and then came to a stop. 18, this is, can you imagine? Read it, because this, I mean, it, the internet is not around back then, or it's not around, I mean, the internet in Columbine days was around, but not nearly as prevalent in terms of search engines as it is today with the ability to access information. So it's gotta be fucking crazy for her to read about her own crime and to see her name in like a physical book. It, it, it's, oh man, this has got to be horrifying. 18-year-old Claire Wilson was walking with her 18-year-old boyfriend and roommate, Thomas F. Ekman, she read. Reportedly, both were members of the highly con controversial Students for a Democratic Society. She was also eight months pregnant and due for a normal delivery of a baby boy in a few short weeks. Claire could feel her heart thumping in her chest at what came next. Looking down on her from a fortress 231 feet above, Whitman pulled the trigger. With his four-power scope, he would have clearly seen her advanced state of pregnancy. As if to define the monster he had become, he chose the youngest life as his first victim from the deck. Given his marksmanship, the magnification of the four-power scope, an unobstructed view, his elevation, and no interference from the ground, it can only be concluded that he aimed for the baby in Claire Wilson's womb. Jesus Christ. It, 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 oh. It's harrowing to hear that. I trigger warning. Um, I'm gonna let me pause for a second and record a quick trigger warning. I need to do like a blanket trigger warning for these episodes. Um, I'm gonna do that right now. And I'm back. All right, let's go on. Let's go on to the. <laughs> let's keep talking about the gunshot in her womb. Good Lord. How does Claire feel at this time? Claire stood still, the frenetic energy of her fellow travelers receding into the background. What astonished her more than the notion that Whitman had deliberately taken aim at her child, an idea she could not yet fully grasp, was the simple fact that what had happened to her more than three decades earlier was written down in a book that she could hold in her hands. Yeah, that's exactly what I it's fucking crazy that she's like, wow, there's a I, I'm holding it. I'm holding my story or part of it. Damn. 
Though she had no money to speak of for that particular moment, her father had purchased her plane ticket. She did not hesitate before handing over her last $20 to buy the book, which she devoured on her flight to Tucson. The act of reclaiming her history would come afterward in fits and starts, beginning one summer night in 2001 when Claire sat at her computer and used a search engine for the very first time, carefully typing out the words, UT Tower Shooting. She had only a dial-up connection, and the results were slow to load, but the first link that appeared led to a blog written by an Austin advertising executive named Forrest Priest, who had narrowly escaped being shot by Whitman. Priest had been standing across the street from the student union outside the Rexall drugstore on the morning of the shooting, when a bullet had whizzed right by his ear. As Claire read his account of the massacre, every year when August approaches... I start trying to forget, but as any rational person knows, when you try to forget something, you just end up thinking about it more. She felt strangely comforted. In each detail he described, the ear-splitting gunfire, the bodies splayed on the ground, the onlookers who stood immobilized, wild with fright, was once she had carried with her all those years too. Claire initiated a sporadic correspondence with Priest as she continued her initiant existence, first heading to New York to take care of her ailing mother after Ciroc left for college. Oh, God, she really... I'm so fucking glad she took care of that fucking kid. I'm glad that she got some solace and was able to... I, I think she channeled some of the motherhood that she lost into Ciroc for sure. Um, and even though Ciroc is not really mentioned a whole lot in this article, um, you can tell, you can just tell. Um, and then moving back to Colorado in 2005, and Wyoming two years later to teach in Adventist schools. In each place, she felt the strange pull of the shooting tug at her. Once, in a sporting goods store in the Rocky Mountains, she decided to stop at the gun counter and ask the clerk if she could look at a 3006. Whitman had in fact shot her with a 6mm bolt-action rifle, but Claire had been told otherwise. The clerk laid out the 3006 on the glass counter, and Claire studied the weapon, finally reaching out to touch its stock, before pulling her hand back a moment later, unsure what she had come to see. Another time, while driving through the Denver area, she chose to take a detour through Columbine, even circling around the high school. She couldn't say exactly what she had gone looking for, except for some deeper understanding, she told me, that went unsatisfied. Claire had stayed away from Austin for nearly 40 years, but in 2008, when Priest asked her to attend a building dedication for law enforcement officers and civilians who had helped bring Whitman's rampage to an end, she felt compelled to return. The previous year, a student at Virginia Tech had armed himself and opened fire killing 32 people and injuring 17, and Claire, rattled by yet another tragedy, craved human connection. At the ceremony, which took place at a county building far from campus, she fumbled for the right words as she tried to convey her thankfulness to Houston McCoy, one of the police officers who had shot Whitman. When she later joined him, priests, and several officers on a visit to UT, she was dismayed to find that the only reference to the horror that unfolded there was a small bronze plaque on the north side of the tower, set in a limestone boulder beside a pond. It was easy to miss. 
as Claire surveyed the modest memorial, an industrial air conditioning unit that sat nearby cycled on, and a dull roar broke the silence. I had heard about the memorial and had taken solace in thinking that it was a lovely place, she told me. I was so disappointed to find no mention of Tom, the baby, or any of the victims. That fucking blows. Afterward, <coughs> excuse me, excuse Afterward, at his home, Priest showed her old news footage that TV cameramen had shot on the day of the tragedy, looking out onto the South Mall. As she watched, Claire was startled to realize that she was looking at a grainy image of her younger self, lying on the hot pavement. When she saw two teenagers dash out from their hiding places and run headlong toward her, she leaned closer, dumbstruck. Local news stations had aired the footage in the aftermath of the shooting and on subsequent anniversaries, but Claire had never seen any of it, and witnessing her own rescue was revelatory. She had always known the name of one of the students who had saved her, James Love, a fellow freshman, had been in her anthropology class, and she had stopped him on campus once in 1967 to thank him for what he had done, but he seemed ill at ease and eager to break free from the conversation. His partner, a teenager in a black button-down shirt and Buddy Holly glasses, had remained unknown to her, so much so that she had half-wondered until she saw the black-and-white footage if he had been an angel. Priest helped her solve the mystery in 2011, after he spotted a headline in the American Statesman that read, Man who's the life of the party has brush with death. Below it, the article detailed how a local performance artist named, oh my fucking god, Artly Snuff. Shut up, shut up. No, no, no. no. Okay, 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 all right. <clears throat> Artly Snuff, a member of the parody rock band The Uranium Savages, had survived a near-fatal car accident. Born John Fox, Snuff had graduated from Austin High and had been weeks away from starting his freshman year at UT when Whitman opened fire. Though the article never referenced the shooting, the mention of Snuff's name jogged Priest's memory, and he recalled an American statesman column on Snuff years earlier in which he was praised for having helped carry a pregnant woman in the midst of the massacre. Priest tracked down Snuff on Facebook, and in 2012, he put Snuff and Claire in touch. To finally hear her voice was stunning, because I'd wondered what happened to her so many times. Snuff told me of their first phone call, which spanned hours. For both of us, just talking was a catharsis. I'd seen things no 17-year-old should ever have to see, and I'd carried those memories with me. And Claire understood. <sighs> That is one of the beauties of technology bringing everyone so closer together. Fucking Facebook, Jesus. 2012 Facebook was a much better time. Um, 2021 Facebook is a fucking nightmare. Snuff told Claire how he had crouched behind the Jefferson Davis statue with Love, a friend of his from high school, whose life was later cut short by bone cancer, as gunfire erupted around them. They had agonized about what to do, he explained, as they looked onto the South Mall and saw her lying there, still alive. Too, coward too terrified to move, they had initially stayed put, Snuff's own cowardice, as he saw it, measured in fifteen-minute increments whenever the tower's bells chimed on the quarter hour. In a voice thick with emotion, he told her that he always regretted taking so long to work up the courage to help her. 
Claire assured him that he owed her no apologies, saying that she loved him and would always think of him as her brother. She said so again when they saw each other in Austin in 2013, wrapping her arms around him in the entrance of the Mexican restaurant where they had agreed to meet. Oblivious to everyone else, they embraced for several minutes. It was so affirming to finally say thank you, Claire told me. Around them, a national debate about gun control had just erupted with new force. Three months earlier, in Newtown, Connecticut, a disturbed young man had fatally shot 20 children, none more than seven years old, and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School. In a forceful speech at a memorial service for the victims, President Barack Obama had pushed for tighter regulation of firearms, warning that the cost of an action was too great. In response, many gun owners had bristled at the notion that fewer licensed weapons and more government regulation would keep anyone safe. In Texas, where the legislature was in session that that spring, lawmakers had proposed several campus carry bills, which sought to upend the long-standing state law banning firearms at public universities. If passed, concealed handguns would be permitted on university grounds, in dorms, and in college classrooms. Oh my god, what a poor fucking idea. Claire had returned to Austin because Jim Bryce, a lawyer and gun control activist whom she had met when they were both students at UT, had asked if she, as a victim of campus gun violence, would testify at the Capitol, though she had not engaged in any activism since the 60s. The Seventh-day Adventist ad- church adv- advocates strict political neutrality. neutrality. She felt that she could not turn down Bryce's invitation. And so... On March 14, 2013, Claire appeared before the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee, one among scores of people who had come to voice their support or opposition to the bills. No longer the campus radical she had once been, she did not stand out in the overflow crowd. At 65, everything about her, from her chin-length silver bob to the reading glasses she slid on when it was her turn to speak to her comfortable shoes, was muted and sensible. Like the other speakers, Claire was allotted three minutes. Compressing the totality of her experience into a few soundbites seemed impossible, but once at the microphone, she tried. I never thought about somebody using a gun to kill themselves or others until August 1st, 1966, when I was walking across the campus of the University of Texas, she said, her voice clear and steady. She sketched out what had happened to her in a few unadorned sentences. I take a sip. I was 18 and eight months pregnant, and when she reached the end of her story, she added, I was not able ever again to have a child. She expressed her reservations as both an educator and a sixth-generation Texan who had grown up around guns about the proposed bills arguing that the legislator's objective should be to prevent future attacks, not arm more civilians. A campus is a sacred place, she said. Then, her time was up. That fall, Claire received an email from Gary Laverne, with whom she had met and corresponded after reading A Sniper in the Tower. The email told of an astounding discovery. My dear friend Claire, it began. A few years ago, while working on my last book, I downloaded a database of grave sites located in the Austin Memorial Park. My purpose was to locate the graves of some of the persons I had written about in Before Brown. 
It wasn't until this past weekend that, while browsing amongst the almost 23,000 entries in that dataset, I noticed an entry for a baby boy Wilson. Laverne went on to explain that the burial date for the child was listed as August 2nd, 1966, the day after the massacre. <coughs> Records to show that the unmarked plot had been purchased by a Lyman Jones, a man whose name Laverne did not recognize. Claire did, immediately. A veteran journalist who had written for the Texas Observer during the 50s and 60s. Jones was her mother's second husband and Claire's stepfather at the time of the shooting. Oh, man. Claire had always been aware that the baby had received a proper burial, but she had not pressed her mother for details until her later years, when her mother's memory was failing and she could no longer summon them. Oh, wow, I'm so fucking glad that Gary came through with this information, because her mom had forgotten by that point. The small plot she now learned from Laverne was located in a section of the cemetery mostly devoted to infants and stillborn babies. Claire, I hope this gives you comfort, he wrote, explaining that he had gone to Austin Memorial Park to find the burial place. Attached is a picture I took of the gravesite. Your son is buried beneath the flowers I placed there so that you can see the exact spot. Claire read and reread the email in silence, brushing away tears. Your son buried beneath the flowers. She would visit the cemetery the following August, after Laverne and his family had a headstone made with Claire's blessing. Below the image of a cross, it read, Baby Boy Wilson, August 1st, 1966. It stood near the perimeter of the cemetery, on a sunburned stretch of grass near a single hackberry tree. When Claire found it, she knelt down and gathered a handful of soil, placing it inside a foil, folded, foiled sheet of paper. Fucking... <coughs> My brain is exploding. A folded sheet of paper for a keepsake. Then she prostrated herself, pressing her forehead against the marble marker, which was cool even in the blazing August sun. She thought about Tom and about the baby's father, John Muir, whom she had called and spoken with after a decades-long estrangement, before he had passed away that June. As she lay there, she was acutely aware of the baby's presence, of the molecules somewhere below the Earth's surface that belonged to him. Claire stayed for a long time and prayed. I felt not so hollow, she said. I felt close to God. Claire lives in Texas now, having finally, after all her years of wandering, come home. Six years ago, she moved to Texarkana, which, with some 37,000 residents, is the most densely populated place she has lived for some time. An Adventist school had needed a teacher, and so, as she has done more than a dozen times before, she started over. Not since Eden Valley as she remained in one place for so long. When I went to visit her earlier this year, we met at her white double-wide trailer, which sits on the pine-studded western edge of town. Her bedroom window looks out onto a pasture, and though the view lacks the grandeur of the Rockies or the Great Plains, it allows her to imagine that she still lives in the wilderness, far from civilization. 
A few steps from her front door, in raised beds, she built herself with wood. She had planted a winter garden. Collard greens and kale flourished next to fat heads of cabbage, and despite a recent freeze, a few stalwart strawberry plants thrived. As we talked, Claire bent down and tore off a few sprigs of mint, handing me some to taste. Isn't it wonderful, she said, her pale blue eyes widening. When Claire told friends about her life in Texarkana, she focused on the happy things. Her garden, the Nigerian family she had befriended, her students, many of whom lived below the poverty line, who hugged her waist and called her Miss Claire. She did not share her worry about Sirak, who was standing beside her on that January morning. Aww. He wore a cheerless expression, a black wool hat pulled down to his eyebrows, his shoulders squared against the cold. He had moved back in with her in August, not long after his 30th birthday, but he bore little resemblance to the young man she had sent off to college. Unless prodded to talk, he said little, and his speech was slow and leaden. Every now and then, as Claire and I chatted, he would smile at the mention of a childhood friend or story about his and Claire's days in the Arizona high desert. Except for those moments, he seemed to have taken up residence in a world of his own. For Claire... The first clue that something was not right with Sirach came in 2007. Then, a month shy of graduating with a music degree from Union College in Nebraska, Sirach had called her late one night. Mom, my thoughts are racing and I can't make them stop, he confided, adding that he had not been sleeping much. Claire offered reassurance, certain these were typical jitters of a graduating senior. <clears throat> but that July, shortly before he was set to begin a prestigious teaching fellowship in the University of Nebraska's music program, he called again and begged her to take him home. Rather than try to reason with him, she made the ten-hour drive from Colorado. When she arrived, she found Sirach standing in the parking lot of his apartment complex, wide-eyed and on edge. He refused to step foot inside his apartment by himself. He was terrified, shaking, talking so fast, she told me. That's when I knew something was really wrong. At home, his behavior only grew more erratic. Sirach, usually a modest person, would walk to his mailbox at the end of the driveway in nothing but his underwear. He slept little and was reluctant to venture far from the house. Once, after Claire and he ate out, he told her he was sure that the restaurant staff had put laxatives in their food. As paranoia is weird. She took Sirach to see a series of mental health professionals, good, but no one could offer a definitive diagnosis. A prescription for Lexapro, hey hey, <clears throat> a popular antidepressant, did little to lessen his anxiety. Sometimes he would slip into a manic state, and Claire would coax him into her car and head for the emergency room. At the hospital, I always got the same question. Is he threatening or threatening you or trying to hurt himself? And she said, and I would said no, and they would tell me that they couldn't help me. Rather than face his descent into mental illness alone, Claire reached out to his biological father who had been granted asylum in 1999. Her ex-husband Brian had remarried and largely receded from Sirach's life. The rest of Sirach's family, his mother, two brothers, and two sisters, had immigrated when Sirach was 13 and settled with his father in Atlanta. Sirach had visited them nearly every summer since, and he and his siblings had forged an easy bond. 
Claire believed that Atlanta, with its big city mental health resources, would be a better place for him than rural Colorado, and in 2008, it was agreed that he would go live with his Ethiopian family. In Atlanta, a psychiatrist finally diagnosed Sirach with bipolar disorder and prescribed him lithium, a mood stabilizer. During long, discursive phone conversations with Claire, Sirach assured her that he was taking his medication, but despite his sincere longing to get well, he never consistently followed his treatment protocol. Though he managed to hold a number of menial jobs, he bagged groceries, worked as a drugstore clerk, cleaned out moving trucks, delivered auto parts. His employment was often cut short when a manic episode overtook him. By 2012... During one of many voluntary commitments to Georgia Regional, a large state-run hospital with a psychiatric ward, his diagnosis was modified to reflect his worsening condition. I have bipolar 1, manic severe, with psychotic features, Sirach explained to me matter-of-factly, referring to the most severe form of the disorder. When Claire saw Sirach on a visit last July, she was stunned. His doctor had put him on a powerful antipsychotic drug to keep his most serious symptoms in check, but it was plain that he was overmedicated. Sirach absently raised his feet, walking in place where he stood, and looked unfocused, his clothes rumpled, his hair uncombed. When he sat, he sometimes drifted off to sleep, and when he spoke, his voice was a curious monotone. I'm not enjoying being alive very much right now, he told her. Eager to find a way to dial back his medications, she moved him to Texarkana the following month and gave him her spare bedroom. She found a psychiatrist to fine-tune his prescriptions and arranged for weekly talk therapy sessions. The change of scenery seemed to help him, at least at first. Today, Sirach told me he no longer wants to die, Claire emailed a handful of close friends in late August. Rejoice with me. By the time of my visit, he had lapsed back into a depression and he announced that he wanted to return to Atlanta. Several weeks later, he did. Though he had once devoted hours each day to the piano, in 2012 he even went to New York to audition for the master's program at Juilliard. He had stopped playing, he told me, because he had lost his passion for music. My doctor said I have something called an anhedonia, he said. It's like hedonism, but it's the opposite. It means I don't feel pleasure anymore. I, um... Boy, oh boy. I'm kind of feeling that right now. Lately, I've been feeling like the only thing that's really like worth it is bed. Is bed, laying in bed, sleeping, just doing nothing but laying in bed, man. And I know that I'm going to get out of it. I know that it's not going to last forever, but I'm, I'm enjoying it right now. I've never really had a moment in my life where I've just sort of like been let my depression kind of swallow me and I have the past couple weeks <clears throat> and there have been times where it was it, most of the time it's been shitty but I, I gotta admit I, part of my body is enjoying the break enjoying the break from the pressure you know you know me making the decision to dial back on podcasting uh burp in the fucking microphone christine i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm gonna do it again i am a microphone burper motherfucker um <laughs> all righty <clears throat> 
I get that. I get the, uh, the anhedonia. He brightened only when he changed the subject to an obsession of his. His conviction that he will one day be reborn as a child of prophecy, or a sort of modern-day messiah. As he described the superpowers he would possess when the prophecy came to fruition, he grew elated, his face alight. Beside him, Claire sat in silence, staring down at her clasped hands. What if Whitman's bullet had never found her? Claire sometimes thinks about the intricate calculus that put her in his sights that day. What if her anthropology class had not let out early? What if Tom had lingered over his coffee one minute longer before they had gone to feed the parking meter? Such deliberations had never satisfied her, because each shift in the variables sets in motion other consequences. If she had not been shot, she might have never found God. If she had not given birth, she would have not known the exhilaration, at 41, of becoming a mother, or the hard-won joy of raising Sirach. Sometimes she finds herself calculating the age of her first child, had he lived, and the number always astonishes her. She wrote it in my notebook one afternoon, carefully forming each numeral. 49. He would probably be a father by now, she observed, and she a grandmother. She rarely gives much thought to Whitman, who remains in her mind remote and inscrutable. I never saw his face because we were separated by so much distance, Claire said. So it's always been hard to understand that he did this, that a person did this, to me. Paging through life on her library visits all those years ago, she studied the photos of him. And one particular image, taken at the beach when Whitman was two years old, had always stayed with her. In the picture, he's standing barefoot in the sand, grinning sweetly at a small dog. Two of his father's rifles are positioned upright on either side of him, and Whitman is holding on to them the way a skier grips his poles. That's how I see him, as that little boy on the shore, still open to the world, just wanting his father's love and approval, Claire said. She cannot grasp how, in such a short span of time, he became so twisted and decided to do what he did, she said but I've never felt it was personal. How could I? He didn't know me, and I didn't know him. It will have been 50 years since the shooting this summer, an anniversary that, for Claire, has brought the tragedy into clearer focus, a documentary that tells the story of the day of the massacre from the perspective of eyewitnesses and survivors, with an emphasis on Claire's ordeal premiered at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin in March, directed by Austin-based filmmaker Keith Maitland. Tower will air nationally on PBS later this year. The documentary is loosely based on a 2006 Texas Monthly Oral History. I served as one of its executive producers. The film, and recent efforts to plan a memorial for August 1st, have reconnected Claire to people she thought she would never see again. I felt so isolated by the years of silence, she wrote to Maitland during filming. Now I feel restored to the community from which I was ripped. Late spring, Claire found herself at the Capitol once again to testify against legislation that would allow concealed handguns on college, college campuses. 
While the bills she opposed in 2013 had ultimately failed, this time her testimony did little to deter gun rights advocates, who succeeded in passing a campus carry bill by a two-to-one margin. Though supporters argued that the measure would make universities safer, Claire was heartened when protesters, protesters, protesters erupted at UT, where an overwhelming majority of students, professors, and administrators balked at the legislators' actions. In what Claire sees as a grotesque insult, the law will go into effect on August 1st, half a century to the day that Whitman walked onto the tower's observation deck and opened fire. Like many survivors of the shooting, Claire will return to the campus to mark the anniversary. The university, now a sprawling, multi-billion dollar institution whose shiny new research facilities dominate the landscape, is drastically different from the one she entered in 1966, but the unsettled legacy of that summer remains. Through the gaping bullet holes left by Whitman's rampage, though the gaping bullet holes left by Whitman's rampage were quickly patched over, Not every scar was filled, and anyone who takes the time to look closely at the limestone walls and balustrades that line the South Mall can still make out tiny divots where his bullets missed their mark. Claire longs to lie down in the shadow of the tower, on the precise spot where she was shot. It's beyond me why I would feel comforted there, she told me, but I want to lie down and remember the heat and remember Tom. And remember the baby. That wide-open stretch of concrete is the last place that they were all together. Oh, my God. That's the end of that article. That is the end of The Reckoning by Pamela Koloff. Um... Sorry it's taken me so long to get this episode out. I've kind of taken breaks in between reading... <clears throat> but I'm here now. I'm doing I'm doing a little bit better. I'm taking my Lexapro. You know, I'm trying not to put so much pressure on myself. I'm not even I'm barely posting on TikTok right now, and I'm sure I'll come back to it. I know I will, but I just need a break. I need to take a break and I need to not make a big stink about it. I just need to not think about it. Don't stink. Don't think. Just bink it, dude. I'm going to bink it. All right. I'm going to go ahead and bink it. I'm going to leave and uh, I'm going to bink it on my own. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. We are going to probably finish part one of the book next time. Um, I, I, I wanted to read more than one story this time, but The Reckoning was that article was just so long. It was so long. We're already at the two-hour mark here. So, hey, hey, hey. We're going to finish up uh, next time. Uh, We're going to start with Jennifer Pan's Revenge. If you don't know who Jennifer Pan is, that is a very, very, very interesting case that I have heard about before, but I'm going to dog-ear that page and come back to it next time. I want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. I I love you very much. Um, Thank you very much. Also, if you want to Join the Secret Book Club and read more of the books that we're reading. It's only 10 bucks a month, and you get at least two episodes a month, if not more. Feel free to join on patreon.com slash a slice of ham, A-S-L-I-C-E-O-F-H-A-M. I would love to have you. 
I thank you very much for joining me here right now. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for being here. Go wash your stinky ass. Take care, brush your hair. I'm getting out of here.